Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. What we're talking about today is what to do when a client is resistant to your suggestions or recommendations. And unless you have magic psychic powers or perhaps are just very coercive, this will come up for you in your coaching business. This is something that actually came up for me relatively recently with a client who um, is in the process of transitioning careers and making a move and is very worried about how they're going to be able to afford when they move to this new place. And so in that conversation with them, I kind of looked at some of the major expenses and when talking about even just broaching the subject, I didn't really get into any suggestions or recommendations. More Mm -hmm. was just asking questions to better understand why that particular thing was important to them. And they resisted immediately. They got emotional. They thought I was not listening to what they were saying that was important to them. There was this very strong reaction and you will get this in your practice. And this is something that will happen to all of us. So we thought it might be really helpful to just talk about how to navigate that, um, why they may be resistant to your suggestions or recommendations. And if it hasn't come up for you already, it will likely sooner rather than later. So I'm excited to dive into this and just to chat today about that. Yeah. So realistically, there are going to be three reasons why. And if you don't mind sharing, we'll come back to your example and talk about what the topics were. And that way we can kind of dissect what those reasons are. So the first reason that they might be resistant is because they have a fear of being judged. Or whether that fear is founded or not, the fear is still there. Yeah. Right. The second reason why they might be resistant is because they don't see the purpose, the why. And so they are thinking that it's extraneous to what they hired you to do. And the third reason why they might be resistant is because they've had past experiences that have not gone well in this particular area. And so the first thing that we want to do is we want to understand that those are the three reasons. And we need to look inward first before we look outward to them. A lot of people, the the immediate thing would be, well, if it's based on their past experiences, then I'm going to immediately start talking about how I'm different, et cetera, et cetera. That's not going to help. At least that's a much later part of the conversation. Yeah, not the first thing that you would want to start with at that point. So let's go with what were the topics, what were the areas that this particular client was uh, hesitant around? 
Yeah. So for them, it was around rent and how much that they plan to spend on rent. And so it was that particular spending item. And it, do you want me to stop there? Or go more into it. Sure. We can. Yeah. I mean, the more we have, the more we can delve into it. And it, I, I think that would be helpful for people. <laughs> cool. So that was the high level topic, but then what I realized is that based on past experiences that she's had with living and the conditions in which she's lived in and what she has now associated paying less in rent with was really what was triggering it. So for her, it was, you know, very little space landlord who is just, it the sounds worst. like the worst, <laughs> even like belligerent and harassing rats, cockroaches, things of that sort. So there is this very visceral reaction to paying less equals those scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so even just asking and probing why it was important to her was really, really uh, emotional. Yeah. So that is definitely falls into the past experiences category. <laughs> yes. And as we look at these different areas, the first thing that we have to do is we have to take ownership of what we are doing in this. I mentioned the idea of whether feeling judge is founded or not. The feeling is there. The reality is financial coaches, financial advisors, financial people in general, not very good on the non-judgmental scale. As a whole, I'm sure our financial coaches will be like, I'm great at it. But uh, as a whole, we are not very good. And this is something that our natural tendencies to look at things and, and categorize them as good financial decision, bad financial decision. Or for those of you who are like, oh, I don't do that. I'm not black and white. I have a spectrum, a scale of on scale of one to 10. You know, it, you're still categorizing them on a scale of good to bad. That by definition is judging. Right. You are judging that decision. And so we we have to sort of take ownership of our role in the client's feeling of feelings of being judged. And that is not a comfortable thing to do. And it's tough. I think for us, we've as coaches, we've had things that have helped us be successful in our personal finance journey. And so we can often and I'll say I've certainly done this myself, put more weight to those things that have helped us be successful and that not just lead to judgment, it, that is judgmental when you're saying right. this is what I did and this is the right way to do it versus really coming at it from the other person's experience first. Yeah. And going back to a spectrum, realize that even just saying, even if you say, well, it's not the right way, it's just a good way to do it. That still is a judgment in and of itself, right? So even if we right. take the, the harsh words off of it, it's still a judgment. And this is not to say that we shouldn't have judgments, right? We, we have judgments all the time. It's we want to be aware of them. And we want to understand how those judgments will impact other people. And we want to have a really good willingness to step away from those judgments. There's a lot of people that might say that spending 40% of your take-home pay on rent is a terrible idea. Way too much. 
way too much. And yet there are clients who I have advised them to move up to 40% of their income on rent. And part of it was because they were spending an enormous amount of money on all this other stuff that a better apartment would actually eliminate all of those expenses and it saved them money to increase their rent to that ridiculous rate. <laughs> and so it's, we want to be very careful about, you know, these hard and fast rule of thumbs. Everything is about the individual. And hard and fast rule of thumbs, those beget judgments. When you say you should spend no more than 25% of your income on X, that by definition is a judgment. And when people don't fall into that category, they will feel judged for very obvious reasons. Something you mentioned in the beginning that I think is important to tie in here is you kind of mentioned that like, even if... Like they don't feel judged like you are judging them. And I think it's not the exact words that you said, but I think a helpful frame that I've heard it before is not saying like, oh, I said something that made them think I was judging them, but really looking at it from their perspective and just get that like you are judging them because it almost doesn't matter what your intent is or how you see it as the coach. That's been a really helpful way for me yeah. to just get into the mind of the client to just say like, I am doing this thing that they see as real because for them it's real. And so I have to accept that that is real for them. And then that, that is just like how I need to start languaging it to myself and saying it to myself. And then I can really start to get a little bit more of how they are feeling. Yeah, there's a weird thing with intent because the concept of intent is, well, I don't want to, or I can't get inside their head. So therefore, I expect them to get inside my head to understand my intent, right? Interesting. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's taking the idea of placing yourself in the other person's position yeah. and understanding it from their perspective and saying, well, this was my intention is really saying, well, I don't want to do that. My expectation is they do that for me. Perfectly fine if you're the client. Right. But in this scenario, we're not. Yeah, so that's that's a really I think that is a really good thing to point out what you pointed out because we do want to look at it from their perspective and really give up our ego, our insecurities, our our feelings of not wanting to feel judged and just say, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable here and realize that what I did there judged them and made them feel judged and I need to figure out how to correct that. That's a really good point. And what I've found to be the best in my own experience is the sooner I don't make excuses for it, the sooner I get into their shoes and just acknowledge like, hey, I totally judged you right there. Or yeah. this is, what, and just take ownership of it and don't try and make excuses or like you said, make my ego feel better. The easier it is to not move through it or forward, not just for the sake of moving forward, right? But it allows them to actually feel heard, feel validated, and actually gets us to where we want to be faster. Yeah. Whereas in my experience, if if we don't take ownership of it, then the problem lingers for longer and can really damage the relationship. 
Well, and then it starts to spread to other things because now they're feeling in areas they might not have feel judged otherwise. Now they're starting to feel judged because they're looking for that more. Good point. Another thing that I find is really helpful is when, and this is something you might do with all clients. This is something you might do as one of the things that's when you see someone being resistant, trigger this response, which is to say, before we get started, I want to know what are your sacred cows? What are the things that you absolutely do not want to cut? And the those sacred cows are, we don't want to identify them. And we want to express that we're not identifying them to kill the sacred cows. We're identifying them to understand these things are important, why they're important, so that I can make sure that the work that I do with you is based on what you want, not what I think you should want. And it's very important that we, in general, have that mentality of this is about getting them what they want, not what I think they should want. An example of a sacred cow might be a person spending 10% of their money, of their take-home pay, on getting manicures. And I had a couple of clients that literally, as we were working things together, they like hesitantly said, well, I mean, what about manicures? Can we put that into the budget? I'm like, if you want to, yeah, let's put put in a category just for manicures, right? And then later on, they were joking about, you know, because it went under discretionary. My definition of discretionary is not the typical definition. It's things that you can make decisions about on a day-to-day basis. So it has nothing to do with priorities. And they joked, well, I mean, manicures aren't discretionary. And so what that showed was this was like really important to them. And a lot of people might say, no, that is a purely frivolous, you know, just about your looks, et cetera, et cetera, experience. And yet some of those same people might look at a person that says, well, my 10% tithe is not discretionary and would be totally okay with that. And the reality is whatever is important to the person is important to the person, whether it's tied to their religion or tied to pampering themselves to make them get rid of some stress, right? It's still highly important to them. And we want to be very careful about passing those judgments of, but that's a frivolous expense. And it's why I don't really like the term discretionary expenses, the way that it's defined. Yeah. Because that in and of itself, necessity versus discretionary is judgmental. Yeah. That whole needs versus wants yeah. statement. Yeah. So, And I really like that idea of framing it too, of saying, this is my definition of discretionary and putting it in a way that reduces the amount of potential judgment in there. That's really smart to do as a, like a way of framing the conversation with clients. And I will oftentimes fall on my sword in order to avoid being stabbed with one with clients by saying, look, I know that this is a problem. I don't want to fall into that trap and I'm asking for your help to avoid it. (laughs) Right. To basically say, I'm the idiot. You're here to help me. All right, so let's go on to not sure why. And yeah. this is another really important one, especially when it comes to finances, right? You're helping me pay off my debt. What does this thing have to do with paying off my debt? 
And while the typical response is, well, if that other thing costs money, it has everything to do with paying off your debt. That's not really a fair explanation because you're spending $100 a month on cable TV. Cutting that off would allow you to put $100 a month more towards your debt. Yes, but I spend thousands of dollars a month on all sorts of other stuff. So why is this $100 so special? Right. Right. And so it's it, when we're talking about not sure why, it's very important that you're not superficial in your reasons. You're not saying, well, all your money matters because right. that's a superficial reason. It's not to say that that superficial reason is not true. It's just still superficial. So we want to peel back the onion layer a few more times of explaining the reasons why. And this reason why is super important, extremely important. Let's say that you were buying a new monitor for your computer and you go on to some website that's selling monitors. And the first thing they say is, I need you to fill out, before you can look at any monitors, I need you to fill out this questionnaire that says what computer you have, what type, what internet connection that you have, if you have a Bluetooth device, what type of phone do you have, right? And you've got like 15 different things to fill out of all your personal electronics and equipment and everything else. How are you feeling about that survey? A little invasive or partly like why? Okay. Do you need this? If they did that exact same survey, and in the beginning of it, they had a paragraph that said, you know, monitors integrate with technologies while any monitor can, can plug into a computer. Different monitors integrate with different technologies with certain features that are disabled or other things along those lines. So we're going to ask you some questions about a bunch of your computer equipment so that we can rank the monitors according to the ones that are the most feature intensive that integrate with your technology to the ones that have the least features that integrate with your technology and you'll lose those features so that you're not paying for features that you'll never be able to use. Now, how are you feeling about that survey? Like they're actually trying to help me. Yeah. And this is really important. And this is the idea of not the superficial reason why, right? You need to really give them why is this area important? Why, what are we going to do with this? What is, how is it going to benefit me? And that a lot of people will give resistance to things. You know, in the case of this survey, you went from, you're being invasive and trying to get my social security number. Is there a Nigerian print scam that's coming all the way over to, oh, wow, I love filling this thing out. <laughs> and so that why is really important. And it may be if you're feeling resistance that you haven't fully gone deep enough in the why. For that, and in this case, like why the debt goal is so important to them, just for clarification. Or so part of it is why the debt goal is so, so important to them. Part of why it, that particular category. Why is this particular category important to it? Because someone's making $3,000 a month in take-home pay, $100 is... 3% of that. So why is this 3% more important than the other 97%? Why are we focusing on this? And the more that you can express that at deeper levels of understanding and of connecting to their whys, which is their goals, 
the more the less resistance you'll feel. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to get rid of all resistance. We're talking about ways to minimize resistance. And I think that's why it's helpful to go and ask them about the sacred cows in the beginning to get a sense of what is sacrosanct and what isn't, what is their potential even to have movement on and what isn't. So you can kind of at least in the first bit leave those sacred cows off the table or certainly leave them completely off the table in that beginning discussion. And then, yeah, it is a fair amount of work, you know, to, to say, well, maybe let me pose this to you. So then you have, let's say you have some sacred cows with, that take up 40% of the budget. So you have mm-hmm. 60% left over. How do you frame it? Or how would you recommend that a coach frames it to know where to start or to how to like start that, that conversation around where there might be wiggle room or places to adjust. So I'm going to give a flippant answer. You? But it's not what? Flip, right, me. Yeah. But it's honestly not flippant. And then I'll want you to push back with more detail in the area that you wanted to go. Uh, but you start with the 60%. Jackass. <laughs> but I think that's important because a lot of people, when they get yeah. these are my sacred cows, and this is human nature, when we're told, no, you can't do something. We're all five-year-olds at heart. We want to say why, and we want to why, push why, why, right? Yeah. So you know, until you've exhausted the other sixty percent, don't go to the sacred cows. Even though everything in our being wants us to do it, and we have all sorts of rationalized reasons why we should, because well, we need to challenge people on their sacred cows, and we need to help them grow, and right. But those are kind of rationalizations for why we're feeding our inner five-year-old of pushing the boundaries. Because you could literally just say, they told me what they what their sacred cows are. Okay, cool. So I love that that was a flippant answer in that way, because I think it is really, really important to people to, to notice that that voice inevitably comes up. Or I'll say from my experience, it definitely comes up. Like, oh yeah, why is that? I'm very curious. And yeah. why it's sometimes hard just to accept that, okay, those are your sacred cows. So then let's talk about the other 60 yeah. and how hard that actually is to do. It is because everything screams at us. They should not have 14 different streaming service uh, subscriptions and cable, right? But who knows? Maybe they, maybe they write for a newspaper, uh, you know, around culture or a TV. Mm-hmm. Trying to get rid of Netflix. For my wife and I, um, or Disney Plus at some point, probably in the future, is going to be a non-starter because we co-sleep with our kids. We both work lots of hours jobs, long hour jobs. We don't leave our kids with anyone else on the weekend, partially because of the pandemic, but partially because we do have demanding jobs. So our date nights are after our kids are in bed with us, we watch a movie together. So getting rid of that is not getting rid of a streaming service. It is getting rid of our relationship, part of our relationship connection. Yeah. And so it's it's really important, yeah, that we we have we start with the other 60%. Once we get through that, then we can look at the 40%. And we don't ever want to look at it from a judgmental perspective of, well, you shouldn't have 14 streaming services. Why do you need to go into the other 40%? And I'm let's not make this a rhetorical question. Give me an example of a reason why you might need to go into the other 
if by looking at the 60% that you exhaust those options and based on what they've told you is important to you or the goals that they want to hit, there's not the ability to make progress in the way that they say they want to make progress with what you've already gone through in the 60%. Perfect. So let's say it's about paying down their credit card debt and they're not going to make progress. Okay. Then don't take ownership of other people's decisions and definitely don't take away their agency and their decisions by telling them you need to do this. Instead say, yeah, great. So we've got, we got a good budget together. You're, you're on track to pay down your credit cards by this date. Here's what the interest expense is going to be during that period of time. And this is, the, this is your credit card freedom date. How does that progress feel to you? I know it's not what we originally talked about, but how does that feel to you? And allow them to give their response to that rather than us saying, well, you didn't hit your original goal. So therefore, I'm going to go into your sacred cows and start slaughtering cattle. Got graphic quickly, Josh. <laughs> yes. Here we go. And if they say, yeah, no, that sounds great. Two things. Number one, believe them. Number two, take the win as a financial coach that they just said you solved their problems. Don't turn a win into a loss. And say this isn't the rate of progress that I had hoped they would make or that now I failed because it's not what they originally said when they didn't have an understanding or we didn't have an understanding of even what the progress could be in the near term. Exactly. And even beyond that, don't take the business win and turn it into a loss because you could very well be turning a person that would refer you to all their other friends because, yeah, I gave them my goal. My goal was unrealistic, but they put me on a plan and I'm going to be, I'm going to be debt free on my credit cards just one year later than my, than what I originally wanted, which is awesome. And you're turning that conversation to, yeah, I mean, I hired this financial coach, he gave me a budget, and then he forced me to get rid of all the things that I care about in my life. Yeah. Right? I have <laughs> business went into a business loss. Yeah. And I found that you know, with clients, when if I let them go on their timeline, right? If they say, these are the things that are important to me. And you know what? I'll make the change at a slower rate than I originally said, just based on now that I see because yeah, sometimes they, well, a lot of times they will set goals and they aren't necessarily rooted in reality Yeah. Uh, when we initially ask them. And so then, okay, great. The, you're going to do it at a slightly slower rate because you want to spend money on manicures and Netflix. And then months go by or a, a, it could be a month. It could be a couple of weeks. It could be more. And then they'll come back and say, oh, well, actually, now that I've had some time with this, now I actually realize that I want to start making these adjustments because I want to make faster progress. And you know, yeah, nine, 99 times out of 100, when I have, you know, done bad and set and tried to do the, the like, here's what you should do, it fails. And that's like both bad business and bad coaching. Mm -hmm. But when it's them figuring it out for themselves, and like you said, just, hey, does that work for you? And they're like, yeah. And then they go test it out. And they ultimately get to something more similar to the idea I had in the beginning. Not saying or they I'm, don't, and that's fine too, because you I was, still help them. I was going to say, and it, that's not the point, right? To get them to what I, to get them to do to what my original thought was. Like, it's ultimately going to be better either way, whether they're in alignment with that initial idea of yours or not, if you let them have their own experience. 
And if a client says to you, yeah, yeah, that's a year further than I wanted. I'm not so sure about that. Okay, now you they've they've opened up the door. Yeah. You haven't broken down their door. And you can go to them and say, totally understand. The only thing that's left is those sacred cows. So we're not going to talk about spending them. Let's just take a look at, well, if we gave up this sacred cow, what would it do to the timeline? We're, we're not saying we're going to do any of that. Let's just look at what the numbers are. And then we'll talk about it after we see the numbers. And again, allow them, the agency over their own decision to say, yeah, I would be willing to give up Netflix to shave off two months or two months doesn't matter to me. I don't care that much. I'm keeping Netflix. Or, you know, I or now see this whatever. and I would rather take a side gig or drive right. for Uber or do something where we've gotten to the point where I've cut enough and now we need to look at the income side. Yeah. And those are all going to be better than trying to force a solution. Yep. And our last one is past experiences. Awesome that it kind of just lined up perfectly. But going back to your original comment, people's past experiences and understanding, understanding how those past experiences inform the future. And a lot of financial co coaches are familiar with ideas of money scripts. Money scripts don't just come out of childhood. They come out of, you know, having this experience with this bad apartment. But we tend to view money scripts as things to be overcome. And that may not be true. <laughs> All scripts, scripts come from transactional analysis. I forgot the psychological term. So scripts, money scripts comes from a psychological theory called transactional analysis and specifically the scripts portion of that psychological theory. And all scripts have both harmful and beneficial sides to them. We would not develop those things if they did not have beneficials. And so it's very important we don't view scripts as things to overcome, right? Because there are some beneficial things that come with them. Instead, we want to understand what those past experiences were. We want to understand why they're having that response to it. And then we want to have a really, really strong understanding of, are we have, going to have to give up on some of those things? In the case that you had pointed out with regards to the lower income, I'm sorry, lower rent rather, that would probably be the very last thing that I would ever touch. And this might be an example of a client where I might find a way to increase their rent budget <laughs> because if you try to overcome that script and get them into a lower income thing, now you are rolling the dice. And no matter how much you try to help and control it and everything else, there is still going to be a risk of they might get into a bad apartment. Even if they don't cut their budget, they might get into a bad apartment, <laughs> right? There's always that risk. and. Now what you've done is you've created an environment that strengthens the script. Yeah. And that I'm the reason why. And I'm the reason why. Yeah. Furthermore, if that happens, not only is the script strengthened, but now they're much more likely to give up on all the other work that you've done with them. 
And so it's very important that we don't come at it from, we come at it from a perspective of understanding, not understanding in order to overcome. Yes. Now, this isn't to say that you shouldn't work with clients on scripts, on their scripts, but be very, very careful about having the intention of overcoming the scripts because, you know, she has this script because she's had very bad experiences with apartments. And that type of experience has impacts on mental health, has impacts on physical health, has impacts on their ability to focus at work, could lower their ability to get raises because of the stresses they're feeling at home impacting their job, can lead to more stress spending in other areas. And even though it that script might be detrimental because objectively they could lower their budget and not end up in that scenario when we balance everything in combination overcoming that script could actually be detrimental to them financially because of even if they get into a place that's good that script is still going to play on their psychology and they're going to feel stress and they're going to feel like the sword of Damocles, uh, uh, a sword is hanging over their head, right? That might come down at any moment and the rats are going to come out of the walls or whatever else it happens to be. And that could lead to stress spending. That could lead to going back into bad habits. That could lead to not being able to focus as much work and missing out on a job promotion or not getting a high as, as high of a raise as they could have gotten. And so we want to understand make sure that we understand it, but understand it at a deeper level of how these scripts could impact other areas as well. Great points. Just to share kind of how it ended in terms of, yeah, you know, when yes. it came up. So I oftentimes think of these situations story. as like the finger trap idea, where if you try and pull away and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant or invalidate their experience or cover your own backside. It just mm -hmm. locks you in even worse. So, you know, when I, you know, she got really resistant and emotional. And so I just said, look, I totally get it. I wasn't listening to you. I'm sorry for not hearing what you were telling me that uh, that was something that couldn't, that like is a non-negotiable. And again, I hadn't talked about changing it yet. I was just asking questions about it, but still I hadn't heard what, you know, it's that validating and what she is feeling. And having that be the actual reality, it doesn't matter what I think is going on. It matters that she thinks. Yeah. And then just kind of said that and let her say a little bit more of her piece and then moved on to talking about other things. And then the next meeting, she came back and was like, hey, I just want to like let you know, I was super stressed last session. You know, there's a lot going on. I really appreciate the way that you handled that and that, like, you know, you listened to what I was saying. And so I think in this, just a, it was a helpful reminder that clients getting emotional or not being perfect as a coach is not a bad thing. It's what you do when those things happen and how quickly you can notice what's going on and be able to then correct it. And that when you do, clients aren't looking for perfection. They're looking just to be heard and to be treated as like a human that you care about. And mm -hmm. it's, it's oftentimes much easier if you take ownership of it to then move forward and get back on the same page and you can yeah. do it relatively quickly as long as you know i think there's a relationship to the longer that you avoid it the harder it's going to be and 
you know, we kind of started there, you ended there, we talked about this a lot throughout it, but the idea of, you know, you not placing yourself on a pedestal, you looking at yourself first, you realizing that you're the one that needs to change, not the client is really, really important. And this is something that is just universal with everything. It can be with little things. I had a client last night, we, we were having a conversation and during the conversation, uh, this particular client, she has a uniquely spelled name and it could be interpreted with two different pronunciations, right? And so I was going through and talking with each of the couple, right? Naming each of their names as we were talking. And I just stopped and I said, okay, I want to, I want to make sure, is it? And then I gave both pronunciations. And of course, guess which pronunciation I had been using? The wrong one. The wrong one. And I said, I am so sorry. And her response to that was, this is, her response to that is, oh, no, you know, it happens all the time. Don't worry. It's, it's a weird spelling of the name. And it would have been very easy for me to say, okay, you know, thank you, move on and start using the other name. But the reality is, and this is especially true with certain um, ethnic groups, and this person happens to be part of one of those ethnic groups where they get very commonly their names misspelled or mispronounced. Mispronounced, right? yeah. And so, you know, I didn't just follow my sword and said I got it wrong. I then pulled the sword further in <laughs> and said and and told them, you know, no, I, you know. I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate your grace for me, but I don't want, want to be that person that excuses not pronouncing your name correctly because it's spelled differently than the typical spelling. And she uncomfortably just sort of laughed it off because people don't get that experience very often. And so they don't know how to respond to it. But it, those are the types of engagements where you make yourself vulnerable, you make yourself look, quote unquote, like you did something wrong, that deepen the relationships. We have this tendency to feel like if we show vulnerability or mistakes or anything else, that's going to damage our relationship. And it's actually the opposite when we're the one bringing that forward and taking ownership of it. Just one quick thing. She posted it. You know, I was going to say, any questions from she or anyone else? <laughs> the sacred cows, you know, he said, so like 85% household income to mortgage and two car payments. And these are the sacred cows. So the idea of like, what if your housing plus two car payments are the sacred cows and it's 85% of your income? All right. So let's take a look at that, shall we? Yep. All right. So I'm going to give a scenario where... And I'm not, and my response, I want to, it's really important to preface this. I am not saying that all scenarios are like this and 85% of their, of a person's income is automatically okay to go to mortgage and two car payments. Preface it with that. But I'm going to give a scenario where it makes complete sense that that would be the case. <laughs> all right. So this is a family, two young kids. They don't take vacations elsewhere. They have parties at their house regularly. Their things that they do for fun is going out camping in the woods. 
And so they have this huge car payment and housing cost because they have spent for a very nice backyard. They have spent for their cars are more expensive cars because four wheel drive, a camper on the back, so on and so forth. And so these two things or three things, right? Two car payments and the mortgage is not just covering housing and transportation. It's covering entertainment budget. It's covering travel budget. It's covering social budget. It's covering dining out budget because they barbecue in the backyard and they don't go out to sushi. And when we add all of those things up, all and they've got a rental unit that they're going to use in a part of the house because it's a duplex that they're going to use to help finance their kids' college education, the rent from it, and uh, their part of their retirement. So if the housing and the two car payments are covering all of that, does that seem like it's so out of the ordinary now? And again, we want to understand it from the perspective of how does this fit into their overall life? How does this fit into their overall finances? How does this fit into their overall goals? I think getting back to what you said, you can say, okay, well, that 85% is off the table. And then let's look at the 15% and be able to ask questions of them and get them to the point where they can see, okay, that does work for them. And they'll make progress on their goals at whatever rate they're okay with. Or they, you know, just by putting the ball in their court, they'll be able to make the decision whether that works for them or not. And it's not your job to say that that's right or not. And another way of looking at it is, although percentage-wise, ratio-wise, we still keep to under 5% of our take-home pay with this, but my wife and I don't do used cars. Period. End of story. We will never do a used car. Um, And we tend to buy new cars relatively often. And the reason why is because safety features advance every few years by significant margins. And we have two young kids and we would rather lose all that depreciation money and have the peace of mind, et cetera. And this is not to say that parents who buy used cars are bad parents, right? This is our values, what's important to us and what we can afford within our budget. But we always have to understand that people may have reasons beyond just finances, beyond just money, that they're, that's worthwhile to spend on for them. And for us, buying new cars with the most updated safety features is worthwhile spending on for us. And it's not to say that everyone should have that value. Everyone has different values. I drive a POS Saturn uh, <laughs> from 2004 because for me, and Amelia hates it, uh, <laughs> but I'm just like, a car is four wheels from A to B. And that is exactly what I thought before I had kids, by the way. So like you, people's people's goals change and values change over time too. Yeah, 100%. And I'm only going to be able to get away with that for so much longer. Uh, Amelia is like, he had this before we got into our relationship together. Is going to have to go. So I'm also realizing that we're, you know, now it's not just my decision making. Mm-hmm. Right? It's someone else's who I'm taking into account. And the next car that we get is not going to be that. Ah, the joys. Well, this is great. Uh, A little over our usual time, but I really enjoyed this topic of conversation. And hopefully this is helpful for people. Thank you all. I'm going to stop talking now. See you all next week. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, It also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast.